writing today? Have you done film stuff? Uh, yes, I've been doing my film reviews today. Yep. Wonderful. Well, let's start there. So, Brian Viner, okay. before I say anything else, happy blanktieth birthday. Thank you. Have you got a weekend plans ahead of you, or will you just be uh, watching my, Everton my Watford wife, on Saturday? My wife has got a whole uh, series of surprise events planned, so I'm looking forward to that without knowing what it all is. Ooh. So, yeah, that... Yes, that seems to be the right thing to do. Your wife, who is uh, a producer extraordinaire, is she still at the BBC? Uh, no, no, no. She left the BBC many years ago. She is a novelist, so she has written... I think six, maybe seven novels now, of which the last one is called Mixtape and available still in all good bookshops. I saw it. Brilliant. I saw it in a bookshop. Anything with mixtape or cassettes on the cover, uh, I'm instantly attracted to. So I will look forward to reading that. I mean, what I've spent the last few days doing um, is thinking about this chat, which finishes off Scouse Fortnight. So we have had, I'll try and do this off the top of my head, Peter yeah. Kenny Jones, who's written a book about Billy Little, who was slightly before your time at Liverpool. Um, yeah. Jeff Goulding and Kieran Smith, who have written a book about the untouchables Liverpool side. Um, right. And if I haven't mentioned David Prentice, I will. Have you come yeah. across David in your career? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, he was very helpful when I... Um when I wrote my book, Looking for the Toffees, because uh, he's, the, he's the sports editor of the Liverpool Echo, as you know, and uh, he knows even more about Everton than I do. So he was tremendously helpful. He's a really good bloke. He is, and you can listen to my chat with David, which kicked off Scouse Fortnight. So I've embedded three Liverpool fans and an Evertonian within two Evertonians, and I also just spoke to a chap from Everton called Jamie Fahey, who is at The Guardian right. now, but used to work for... The Sunday Sun, up in Newcastle. Okay. It was a Trinity Mirror paper. Right. You are. Well, I'm, in very I'm in very illustrious company there. Absolutely. Uh, and so, uh, one or probably more of those can call themselves genuine scousers, which I can't because I come from Southport, which is uh, about 17 miles further up the coast. Anybody who comes from Southport is known to genuine scousers as a woolly bat. Oh uh, yes. Uh, uh, so I'm a woolly back. I've never been to Southport. I must have been through it on the train. But was this the place which was Lancashire and turned with, because of boundary changes is now Mersey? Yes, until 1974 it was it was Lancashire, yeah. I still like to think of it as Lancashire, but it is part of the Mersey, Merseyside now, yeah. Was it a momentous day? Uh, I think, I seem to remember there being quite a lot of unrest about it in Southport. Not that anybody went to the barricades, but... Uh, yeah, things like the, the livery of buses was changed. It had been this rather nice kind of cream and red. Not that I like red very much, but... Uh, and suddenly overnight it went into a kind of corporate green as, because we became part of Merseyside. But yeah, it was inevitable and that's what happened. But at least, you know, being part of Merseyside put me in the same bracket as all those fine scousers we were just talking about. And there are a lot of them. Um, I do hope Everton win something. I remember, I think I was telling Paul this, Paul McParlin, who's written a book about the Forgotten Champions, which was Everton's yeah, ninth yeah. title. He very kindly sent it to me, yeah. Oh, lovely. Um, because it, it follows on very nicely, because Looking for the Toffees, which is a wonderful and very similar read, just set nine years before that. It's the 77-78 season, and I include it in my book. I wrote this book about modern football, and I read a lot of books, and one of the books I enjoyed most was Looking for the Toffees, because A, 
wide-eyed fan, well-placed to write book. Uh, and B, it was about one of the possible moments where modern football began. And that's what you yeah. wanted to do with this book. It was the last season before the great um, entry of foreign talent. Absolutely. It was, the, it was a sort of watershed moment, really. Before that 77-78 season, you could go around any club in the old first division or indeed all the other divisions, every player really would be from the British Isles. So I include Ireland in that. Yeah. Um, but then it began to change. It began to change with our delays. And, and of course, that was incredibly exciting because the 1978 World Cup, which England weren't in, but nevertheless to a 16-year-old, which I was at the time, it was all phenomenally exciting. And our delays was one of the stars of that World Cup. And, you know, hey, presto, there he was at Spurs and it, it began to change things, and uh, Arnold Muren and Franz Tyson arrived at Ipswich, and uh, of course Ricky Vieira at Tottenham. And um, you know, prior to that, there had of course been a few assorted overseas players dotted around, but very few. But a trickle turned into a flood, um, and you know, whether it was to the long-term benefits of football, I suppose you know we could all argue, but um, but that's what started it, and uh, football changed. And it has kept changing and kept changing. And it is odd. One of the things that I've been at pains to point out in Scouse Fortnight is that Everton, who were one of the big five under the great lates of Philip Carter, are now not in the Super Six, the, the Sodomite Six, trying to get away with yeah. football. Everton have slipped to that kind of, yeah. I call it a silver, like a silver six. It's you, Villa, Leeds, Newcastle, Southampton, because of the youth... Uh, Leeds, did I say Leeds? And Palace, possibly. So there's, so you should never go down. Everton, of course, have played in the Premier League each of the 30 seasons since it existed, but haven't won it. Yeah. Do you have any chance of winning it when you move into the new stadium? Oh, I think, I, I mean, I, I really hope so. I mean, you know, you know, probably not in the next three or five years, but, you know, we would hope that with... All the extra income generated, and we we do have rich owners, uh, which obviously you need these days. Uh, I think we can talk about Rafa Benitez, but um, you know if he sticks around, I, I was very much against his appointment, as I'm sure lots of Evertonians were, because he was tainted by his Liverpool connections. But we we, we loved the idea of Carlo Ancelotti at our club, and look where that got us. So you know to hate the idea of Rafa Benitez. And our club might work in reverse, if you know what I mean. And it might all... You know, he does seem to be uh, doing as good a job as he could possibly do, as anyone could possibly do, really. So it's not something that's going to happen in the next few seasons. But the, the new stadium will hopefully kickstart or continue the start of a, of a kind of revolution. And yeah, let's hope, you know, that we end up back in the, in the big time. It's one thing I've referred to. I think I spoke about it with David briefly, but everyone talks about the post-Alex Ferguson Manchester United team. Eight years since David Moyes left, Martinez, Coman, Ancelotti, and now Benitez, and David Unsworth, who could forget, and, uh, and Duncan Ferguson. Um, would yeah. you rather have an Unsworth or a Ferguson than a Coman or a Martinez or a Benitez? Because someone you cut them and they bleed blue at least get, keeps the fans on side in the way that yeah. Ollie at Man U has done. Yeah, I'm not sure. You talk to some Man United fans. Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure they would agree with yeah, you. Yeah, we'll see what happens this weekend against Liverpool. That could uh, be yeah, the final so score. It's always a dangerous thing, isn't it? I mean, if Stephen Gerrard leaves 
Rangers and goes to Liverpool at some point when Klopp leaves, which is obviously Likely. what he's hoping for, yeah. uh, and what a lot of Liverpool fans hope. You know, then how sad will it be if he if it doesn't work out for him and he goes and starts seeing Gerard out banners or whatever, you know? And obviously he will get a lot of latitude, and and people like him get a lot of latitude. And if Duncan Ferguson, who who I know, you know, was felt he was ready finally for the for the Everton job when Ancelotti left. Um, had he got it, you know, he would have obviously you, you tend to give them an awful lot of slack because he's a he's a legend and rightly so. But uh, I think when it goes wrong, and very often it does with those players coming back, um, it just becomes very sad. You know, Frank Lampard leaving Chelsea. Another, I, I don't know. I mean, it depends who it is. With Howard Kendall, of course, it couldn't have worked any more triumphantly. But then even Howard in the end, came back a second time and then a third time and it didn't, it didn't work out, So, which was sad, really, to see. But um, the first time round, you know, it was it was like the Messiah coming back. And Joe Royal, another one. Yep. So, you know, it has worked at Everton and, you know, it could well work again. A very, very wise man, Brian Viner, once wrote, Sport always disappoints, hopes crash, dreams wither. You wrote that yeah. uh, because you were talking about sports documentaries and you've got this column with the mail, uh, having worked in the past for uh, The Independent and was it The Mail as well in the 90s? Uh, the Mail on Sunday, The, the Independent. Time. I've written for most national newspapers, The Sunday Times, The Telegraph, The Guardian, uh, The Express. Yeah, I've worked for almost all of them, yeah, at so various times. Your byline has been in, in plenty, but you were most known possibly for the Brian Viner interview at The Independent. Uh, well, I did it for a long time. It was, a, it, was a, it was a sports interview. I did it every week for 13 years. So uh, over the course of those 13 years, I interviewed a lot of the most significant players in a lot of, you know, in all the main sports, really. So which was fantastic. I absolutely loved it. Um, and I was sad when it came to an end, but all things do. So, uh, And now I'm, a, now I'm the Daily Mail's film critic. Yeah. Crikey. Uh, and we will get to film in the second half and also talking about Lemster and uh, Doclo. Doclo video. By the way, happy 20th anniversary for next year. Uh, yes, thank you. Thank because uh, I'm resting my Samsung on Tales of the Country based on your... Uh, independent column i'm about a third of the way through it um right but i wonder if gazumped by toya could have been a title i would have gone with gazumped by toya yeah yeah that would have been a better title you're quite right have you spoken yeah. to her or to robert fripp in the 20 no, no, years no, since? No, no. yeah just to put a bit of flesh on the bones of that story thank you yeah we, we tried to buy a house in pershaw in worcestershire just the other side of the M5 from where we are now, and um, she sprang into action and bought it just ahead of us. So we weren't exactly gazumped, but um, I like to say we were because it's a better story. Yeah. But yeah, so anyway, there we are. That's, and that's one of the lovely stories in this book, and it is it's sort of, I'm imagining Martin Clunes playing you and, uh, I don't know, a very lovely woman. <laughs> Leslie Ash. Somebody better looking. No. Oh, you have to get verisimilitude. Nowadays, okay, uh, and also Bye. there is a picture in the back of the book. But I mean, if if you do want kind of a, a Zander Armstrong figure, Zander, you can have Zander. Right. Okay. Yeah, that's better. Yeah. Good. But um, um, you worked for the Ham and High, a paper that I know very well. Dad lived in East Finchley for a bit, and so I would see the Ham and High at the uh, newsstand because you lived in Crouch End, the North London of North London. 
Um, yeah. Were there Everton fans in Crouch End that you could meet uh, up with in a pub? Not that I was... I mean, there was my two sons who I brought up in the faith. Um, of course, you know, it would have made much more sense for them to support Spurs or Arsenal. We were about equidistant probably between Spurs and Arsenal. Um, and Arsenal at that time when they were first becoming aware of football were, you know, quite a force in the way that Everton weren't. But, um, yeah, managed to totally indoctrinate them. They are uh, certainly as fanatical as I am. And uh, my oldest son, who's now 26, but when he was on his eighth birthday, he was a mascot at the uh, before the uh, derby game at Goodison. So um, when when Wayne Rooney was at, Goodison, at Everton, so... Uh, I've still, in fact, I was looking at one of the pictures earlier of, um, of Joe, my son, in his kit um, with uh, with Wayne in the dressing room. And there's a great story because the captain, Everson's captain at the time was David Weir, mm. uh, who I don't know if you've ever talked to, but he's got a, quite a broad Scottish accent. Yes, he's very Scottish, and, yes. Uh, very Glaswegian. He couldn't have been nicer to little Joe, who was, as I say, it was his eighth birthday and he, there he was in his kit. And there we were in the dressing room about an hour before the game. Um, so David Weir came over and took Joe by the hand and said, um, he said, who's going to win the game today, son? Uh, Joe didn't have a clue what he was saying. He said, pardon? Um, he said, who's going to win the game today? He said, pardon? In a very polite, uh, little kind of lisping voice. Who's going to win the game today, son? And then he, uh, eventually I had to translate. I said, Joe, he's, he's saying, who's going to win the game today? And of course, you know, what David Weir wanted was Everton and, you know, we would have all carry on. But Joe, with the sort of child's logic, said, because um, the game was still an hour away, said, um, I don't know. That was a slightly embarrassing moment. But uh, so, um, yeah, I like to remind him of that occasionally. Bathos. I remember because I went to university like you in Scotland. I went to Edinburgh and you were at St Andrews at oh, yeah. different times. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I remember coming across a guy from Stirling and I had that pardon, pardon. And at the third time he went, can you understand what I'm seeing? which is how they speak in Stirling. And I said, look, I've just moved up here. I can barely get the Edinburgh accent. Stirling is like degree level Scottish accent. But uh, five years there, I was attuned to it, even though Edinburgh is very gentle. Uh, do you have strong feelings for Fife, having spent four, three or four years there? I was there last week, yeah. I absolutely love, love St Andrews, love, love Scotland. Yeah, great. It was a great four years of my life, that. Really fantastic. It made a lot of lifelong friends. Um, and um, you've mentioned my big birthday, which is coming up on Monday, and uh, I had about 24 of my old university friends here for a party um, a couple of a few weeks ago, so um, slightly premature birthday party, but yeah, so made some, as I say, some lifelong friends, fa- fabulous part of the world. It is very quadrangular. You know, I, so I, I sat for Oxford, and it seemed like lots of different quadrangles and you had your own scarf for it. With St Andrews, it's two streets. I remember going there uh, when I was about 19 for the first time and it did seem on sea. It seemed like a resort, but obviously it would have been great for me because I did Greek and Latin and it's one of the best places in Britain for it. But it's a shame um, that I didn't go. I I do know friends who went there and studied there. Um, Well, Edinburgh's fantastic as well. Yeah, you did. You did fine because Edinburgh is just beautiful. Has its perks. Henry Winter, Johnny Northcroft, both Edinburgh graduates. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know Henry. Yeah. Yes, you were well, actually. Let's so so you did you join the, you didn't join the independent from the launch in '86 like my learned friend Jim White did. Um, but were you on? No. The, were you at the paper when Jim was there? 
I don't, I'm not sure whether I overlap with it. I've, I've subsequently um, worked with him, um, and he's a great guy. And we did a we did a podcast together for a while, um, but um, I'm not sure we did overlap at the Independent. Actually, I, I went there. No, probably not. I went there in '99, um, and as I say, was there for 13 years. So, so it was Jim Lawton. Jim Lawton was the daddy of the. Yeah, yeah, he was the he was the chief sports writer um, and uh, became a good friend, and he was a, a great character um, and had a, some lots of really wonderful nights out with Jim, um, you know. And I loved listening to. I had a, a famous night out with him at the end of an awards ceremony once. Um, he was great friends with Hugh McIlvanny, and Hugh uh, and Jim and I, I think, um, were all up for awards. Uh, this um, the, the the whatever it was the sports journalism awards. Um, anyway, we ended up going back to this drinking hole hole of being the absolutely the key word in somewhere in Soho uh, that kind of serves after hours drinks with Hugh. He was a member there, and it was this dank kind of basement really. Uh, and we went down there and carried on drinking. And then when it got too late even to be there, uh, he and Jim and I went to. The hotel where Jim and I were staying because we didn't live in London, and um, we just sort of sat in the bar, and I, I was just, I just listened to these two great titans of sports writing, especially Hugh, uh, who famously, um, with with another great character of that era, Ken Jones, um, was went to covered the Rumble in the Jungle and bumped into Muhammad Ali just kind of an hour later. <laughs> wandering around his training camp and sat down. We were able to interview him on the night of the Rumble in the Jungle. So stories like that were just fantastic. And I just, you know, I just sat there kind of, you know, open mouth listening to all their tales. Uh, that was a good night. We were still there, I remember, when the, when the papers arrived at 6 a.m. So it was, a, it was a fantastic night. But Jim was a, he was a lovely man and, um, as I say, a tremendous character. And I had lots of good days out on the road with him. Yeah, thank you very much for that. We haven't really mentioned Jim. I've done about 200 of these, and Jim hasn't come up. But we used to get the Independent at home, so I would have certainly seen your byline uh, when I was yeah. 12, 13, 14. It was the time when, I can't remember who the editor was, um, turned the front pages into stats, tests. Yeah, well, Simon Kellner, Simon Simon Kellner was the... It was, a, it was a really good paper. It was a pioneering paper. Um, you know, it was set up. The, the, the founding ethos was that it wasn't going to be owned by any of the great, you know, the big newspaper groups or a, or a, uh, or be enthralled to its proprietor. It was genuinely independent. Uh, it was, I suppose, left of centre, but it didn't swing wildly one way or the other. It wasn't slightly posturing like The Guardian could be. Um, you know, it was just a... And a lot of people found refuge there who had, you know, got sick of... The other broadsheet papers, The Times, The Guardian, Telegraph. So um, it was an absolutely fantastic place to be, and I had 13 very happy years there. Yeah. Um, the, it is still going. Uh, there's The Independent and The Eye, which is a separate newspaper. Uh, Miguel Delaney seems to have taken over the sports section of The Independent there, and I'm sure he is sharpening some knives because Steve Bruce has finally been given his payoff. Um, what yeah. is your What is your view of... Just the, the nature of modern football. Obviously, you've said Mashiri is our billionaire. But it's not going to be fun when Newcastle play Man City whenever it is, because it's not football anymore. Uh, well, I, I mean, I, you know, it is football, isn't it? It's, it's just the, it's the new manifestation of football. 
Uh, I mean, I, you know, who knew whoever Newcastle a point now um, is is very important, isn't it, for the short to medium term? Because you know, there's talk of Lampard and Gerrard. We mentioned them both earlier, but um, they've got to get this. They've got to get this appointment right, and I, I suspect that they probably won't. And I don't. I really don't think it's going to be. You know, they're not going to be. They're not going to be challenging for the title within the next two seasons. I, I'm pretty certain of that. Um, because of course they're not alone. You know, they're not. I think when Chelsea suddenly acquired money with the Abramovich takeover, um, we haven't seen anything quite like that really. And um, you know, even when it happened to City, you know, they were sort of nothing like that had quite happened before, not to that extent. But now we have a, you know, now that they're, they're joining you know, a little kind of cartel of very, very, very rich clubs. And I know they're supposedly suddenly the richest, but, you know, I think it's going to take time for Newcastle to, to be challenging for honours. Uh, and they've got to get themselves out of a relegation fight, haven't they, first of all? So certainly not going to happen overnight or even within the next two or three years, in my in my view. I, think I, think I feel sorry for Bruce. He's a, I've interviewed him. He's a thoroughly decent man. I think a pretty decent football manager. You know, obviously the writing was totally on the wall. And I know that Newcastle fans are quite rightly uh, very happy to, you know, to see this this new era and the end of the old era. But uh, with Mike Ashley, but um, you know, I don't know. I tell you what, I think Man United. I, I don't think Ollie Gunnar Solskjaer is the right man for United. I think they could do worse than Steve Bruce at the moment. Mm. In fact, they are doing worse than Steve Bruce. But anyway, oh my God, yes. Well, they're playing tonight, aren't they? United. I don't care about the Champions League. It's there are so many teams in that tournament who don't want to be in that tournament and I'd rather focus my ire elsewhere, such as the FA Youth Cup, which I'm writing a book about. So I will be looking at Everton's great youth teams. 2003, was that the last great youth side with Rooney? We've had some very good youth teams, yeah. And it's a sadness at the moment that we don't seem to be blooding too many. You know, there, don't, there don't seem to be that many people coming through the academy and making it in the first team, and you know we keep keep hearing about some very promising youngsters, but uh, uh, not many of them. There's one, Anthony Gordon, who I really like the look of, but he hasn't really been given the extended opportunity in the first team. So, but he might now because we've got so many injuries. You know, yeah, so, it's a shame. Uh, it's a shame we won't see Decore in a blue shirt um, because he did so well at Watford, much like Richarlison who is, uh, I guess, I think he'll do really well under Benitez as well, Richarlison. Uh, just before I forget, Newcastle Man City is 2 o'clock on the 19th of December. So that's the, that's the game to ring. and to, That's the shake derby. The shakedown, as no one will call it. See, I can do this too. Before we reach to the second half, can I mention Frank Warren's new book? Yeah. Yeah, Frank Warren is a figure that has well, been in sport. I think I knew of him from Nassim Hamed onwards. He was Nassim's promoter. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, yes, I'm ghostwriting Frank Warren's autobiography. Yeah. So uh, we, have, we keep having to push it back, basically. Cause, mm-hmm. But hopefully sometime early next year, yeah. All right. Well, he's got a great story anyway. And boxing. I don't know why Eddie Hearn doesn't run a football club. He's got so much money, he can run the football club as well as the boxing stable and the snooker and the darts. Yeah, well, they've had, they've had Orient, haven't they, the Hearns? Are they still there? I don't know. Uh, I, think, I think he must be an honorary director or something. But I guess boxing is easier because you're just fixing and staying in the news. And But it's a, it's a wonderful sport to cover. I'm with Matt Dickinson. I think boxing may well lapse 
in the next few decades, but it does have a social impact. Were you surprised at how much sport could tell us about life when you were covering it? Yeah, uh, yes, of course, yeah. It just intensifies the, the ups and downs, I suppose, and um, certain sports, are, like boxing, actually, are are more interesting to cover than others. Um, whether you're a real devotee of that particular sport or not, I think some sports are just more colourful to write about, and boxing being an absolutely prime example because it's it tends to involve kids usually from the wrong side of the tracks, uh, and that is in itself an, uh, an interesting story. And it's so primal, and, you know, I, I, I'm not sure whether it will wither and die boxing because... It, all they'll do if they try and do that is just drive it underground, and that's not good for anyone. So it's always going to be with us. And um, the best thing you can do for boxing is to make sure that it is properly managed and, you know, that the um, medical attendants are there and, in number and, you know, that it's, there's a, it's properly kind of codified and the people stick to the rules and all that kind of stuff. Got to do it properly. And to I think to try and, to try and ban it um, would be catastrophic because it would just as i say push it underground well, they banned bullfighting oh well, have they though i mean i'm sure mm, you know yeah you'll, you'll you'll find when these things are completely culturally entrenched then yeah. they're, they're impossible to ban it's like fox hunting you know yeah. they, they, i live in the country don't tell me that, the, that people don't still chase foxes because I know they do. So it's just the same, really. Brian Viner, who is a significant birthday on Monday and finishes off Scouse Fortnight, but there will be more Liverpool and Everton-based football because we had Watford had Liverpool last week and lost substantially, and it's Everton-Watford in the Zed Cars derby this Saturday. And I do wish Everton luck because they are the people's team. Everton and Watford, historically, I think, very hard to disagree, the two nicest clubs in Britain. (laughs) Oh, well, I won't argue with you. No, um, and I was... I, The 84 final predates me. Were you at Wembley that day with Elton John? Uh, I, actually, I wasn't, because I had to... I had a, there was a, a very good friend of mine was getting married, um, but I did skip his wedding. I was, I was in Southport for the wedding, and I skipped it um, to watch the game. Um, so that, and that was really... Well, the League Cup final of that year and the FA Cup final, that was the start of our just magical three years that all Evertonians of that era will never forget when we, you know, we were just the best team, almost certainly in Europe, certainly in England, but probably in Europe. And, but for the tragedy of Heisel would have, we think, uh, would have gone on and won, won the European Cup. So, yeah, it was a fantastic, it was a fantastic side. I think it's a great what if. What if Howard Kendall's Everton played Arrigo Sacchi's uh, Milan, how many of those Dutchmen might have ended up in Merseyside? No, yeah, probably. well, yeah, probably none. But the, uh, we didn't need Dutchmen. We just had a, you know, a fabulous team of mostly homegrown players um, who just gelled brilliantly. You know, you could say that there were no real superstars in that side, but um, it was just a, you know, they were just a pleasure to watch. And I say this, that side, you know, the side kind of evolved. Lineker came and Lineker went. Andy Gray came and went, but um, you know it was it was just a it was just a fantastic a proper team, you know, with and and very often overlooked. People who are not Evertonians talk about you know the great sides, the great title winners, and they they go on endlessly about Liverpool and Forest, Forest of the late seventies and so on, and the Leeds of the early seventies and Arsenal and what have you. But um, 
very often they overlook Everton. And I think Everton were as good as any of those teams. You know, one of the great midfields and Reed Bracewell Sheedy, um, and undoubtedly the best goalkeeper in the yeah, world. Yeah, without at a that doubt. Time. It, it is, it is yeah. a known fact, as Rafa would say, these are the facts. Neville Southall was the best goalkeeper of the era. Uh, his book Mind Games, written with Daniel Storey, follows the Bin Man Chronicles. And it's lovely that Nev seems to have become a national treasure, but he doesn't cover any of the limelight that Gary Lineker would. Oh, you're a year younger than Lineker, by the way. Do you... Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing, like how I'm the same school year as like, Troy Deeney. And Andrew Hunter Murray from QI. Um, so we'll we'll head back to the seventies, um, which is the subject of looking for the toffees. Uh, so you were sixteen, seventeen when you were watching the great Everton team managed by Gordon Lee, who is still yeah. with us. Are you in contact yes, with Gordon? Yeah. No, but I interviewed him for my book, Looking for the Toffees. Um, went and sat with him at. Um, at a golf club in um, near where he lives in Lytham, and uh, he was he was great. Um, the players of that, the the fan. It's interesting how fans and players can have two different perceptions of people because the, to the fans uh, and to sort of the football world in general, he projected this image of a sort of doer. He was, I think, a miner's son from Staffordshire. He had this kind of image as being doer. He looked like an undertaker who just lost his wallet you know he just had a he had a, a sort of slightly miserable countenance but his players loved him um almost without exception you know they, he was a proper proper football man and also he you know he was a good manager i always thought i i stood up i was a speaker at some lunch at goodison quite a few years ago now and the speech went really well and i felt i really had the, the whole room with me and then at the end i thought well i need to finish with a toast and i've been talking about the the everton side of that era and so i i ended up by inviting the room to toast gordon lee and only about half the people stood up uh, and the rest just resolutely refused to lift a glass oh. and i just thought and so right at the end, I lost my audience. And I thought that was a shame because, you know, that, that size, you know, of his, first of his first two seasons, um, you know, Everton played football that was just wonderful to watch, you know. And they had a, you know, the, the fantastic Dave Thomas, the best winger probably I've ever seen, certainly in Everton colours, was, you know, could, could drop the ball on an absolute sixpence and Bob Latchford nodded them in or booted them in and um you know right the way through that team they're a very very exciting team to look at and people talk about the goalkeeper and how perhaps had they bought peter shilton which they nearly did a few years earlier um that could have been a title winning side and maybe that's true but i love the goalkeeper big georgie wood um big flaxen haired hero from um from scotland and you know i just love that team and of course it coincided with my you know, absolute formative years as a football fan and going home and away and all that. So, um, um, but it was a, it was a really exciting team, and then it never quite never quite worked. But people forget people who maligned Evertonians who maligned Gordon Lee forget that he gave Graham Sharp his debut. He gave Kevin Ratcliffe his debut. So he he laid some of the foundations that Howard Kendall then built on. Yeah, and as with anything, discovery and development they are equally important. Like Arsene Wenger famously inventing pasta, as I think it's yeah. Rory Smith said. Um, but uh, David Dean was there and got him Vieira. Um, that 77-78 side, 
How were they different in how they played football from Clough's um, Forest and Paisley's Liverpool and Bobby Robson's Ipswich? What made Everton Everton at that time? Um, well, I don't know. How, how did they differ? I, don't, I mean... They were just yours. They were just... They were, they were mine, yeah. I mean, I you know, Liverpool Liverpool was slightly better, no doubt about it. So, so in a different way, were Forest. Um, but you know, we had we had great characters in that side. We had they were tough and they were hardworking and they worked for each other. We had a great left side. The Pedrick, Dobson, and Thomas at the left hand side was as good a left side as as there probably was anywhere in the in the league at that time. Uh, Latchard was, you know, just a fantastic target man, and as I've already said, Thomas was a wonderful winger. And to- I, since I wrote that, looking for the toffees, um, I've become friendly, um, very friendly with Dave Thomas. We we speak about once a, a month. Uh, a huge thrill for me because you know I kind of idolised him and his understanding with Big Bob Latchford uh, as a kid. So um, so yeah, Dave, Dave's a wonderful fella and. Um, one of the uh, one of the many reasons why I really enjoyed writing that book, um, and it's uh, it's become an enduring friendship, which is a thrill. Yeah, and I, I imagine you would not have expected that to happen. Um, but they welcome you into your home. They know that you saw them as a punter, so you did pay their wages in those days. I, yeah, I guess, and the wages, of course, were. I mean, they you know obviously no comparison with. I think wages in those days were on a par with, you know, if, like a doctor or a solicitor perhaps would maybe earn the same as a as a first division footballer, uh, or probably slightly more. But they lived in those kind of houses, uh, you know, because I lived in Southport and knew the houses in which the, the football, everybody knew where they all lived, you know, and there a lot of Liverpool and Everton footballers lived uh, near me, but in much grander houses. But the kind of houses, as I say, that, you know, professional men... And women lived in so but they were earning i suppose about 400 pounds a week back then which you know seemed a lot back then but was no nowhere near uh comparable with what they earn today um mm. but um yeah different times and it went a long way in liverpool so those houses would have still left them a bit left over but they were pillars of the community like the doctor or the vicar, whereas now there's an enclave. I'm sure some of them still live in Southport. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know because I don't still live up there, so I don't know where they live now. Formby, I think. A lot Formby, of them Formby. that's it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I've watched football at Anfield, but not at Goodison Park, but I'll certainly go to Bramley well, Dock. You've got just about time to get yourself to Goodison. You need to if you've never been. I One must. I might. And, you know, before. afterwards I'll stay at the Dixie Dean Hotel, um, which is yeah. owned by the Prentice a Dean family, and that's a place... Have you stayed there? I haven't, mm. no. I was invited to their opening ceremony, and I couldn't make it, um, but I will... So I haven't been, actually, but I'll look forward to it. So you turned David down, but you couldn't turn Bond down. We'll get back to football shortly, but I just want to point listeners in the direction of Brian Viner's uh, male film reviews. I'm a fan of the film Coco as well. I thought it was unbelievable. It's the best Pixar film. Uh, But you went to uh, the No Time to Die world premiere. You called it baffling but brilliant. I don't want to be baffled for three hours, but I suppose it was entertaining. What is it like being at these premieres? Is it like being suspended in kind of hyper-reality? Or is it just all these industry people clapping themselves? Well, that particular one, um, 
I had to write my review. I had to come. It was a bit like being a sports writer again, actually, because I had to write, file my review on the night. So it was all very glamorous and everything. Black tie, premiere at the Albert Hall. Lots of celebrities there, but it was it was very much a working night for me. So uh, we, I had to scurry off soon as the final credits rolled and write my review and then file it by midnight. So we got out of the got out of the film about half ten, and then I had about just over an hour in which to write my eight hundred words. Yeah, um, substantial. It reminded me a little bit of being a sport. I, didn't, I never did. I didn't do very much live football reporting. I did a bit. Uh, but filing a review on the final whistle of, a, of an evening game was always quite a challenge. So, um, so yeah, doing occasionally I do those film premieres where you haven't seen the film ahead of time and you see it on the night and you've got to, yeah, you've got to, the paper's waiting, you know, you've got to get it, get the review in for the next day's paper. So, um, yeah, it's not like going down a mine, but it's about as stressful as my job gets. It is a... Uh... Tonight, Matthew, I'm going to be Henry Winter. One of my favourite film critics, Roger Ebert, whose reviews I used to read before he passed away, said that he used to bring a notepad, write words or phrases, and then tear off the page of notepad, crumple it up, put it under the seat, and then he'd pick up all the fragments uh, after it. I suppose that's less so now because you get screeners and you can just do it at home and you can do, write a review as you watch the film. Well, we don't. We get some screeners at home. It depends what the... the size of the film really they don't but um now you know we're getting during the pandemic we would get them uh sent to us as links computer links but uh they they're almost all the distributors are very much prefer you actually going to their offices in london and what and sitting down and watching it on a on a big screen so we're starting to do that again and uh that's probably the best way of mm-hmm. doing it. I once saw Andrew Collins of the Radio Times uh, scampering yeah. either towards or away from the Soho screening rooms. And I think I've, yeah. I know bits. I think Mark Camos described the art of the 10 a.m. critics screening. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, I saw him yesterday at one. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. No, it's a... You know, when you go into a big action film or, or even worse, a horror film and it's 10 o'clock in the morning, yeah. especially if, as you, as I do, you live in, um, in the sticks and you've had to get up at quarter past five and you're kind of a bit knackered and, um, and you're sitting being scared witless, you know, at 10 a.m. It's, uh, it's a curious way of making a living, but, it, but, you know, it's fun. I would recommend staying up all night with uh, the ghosts of Jim Lawton and Hugh McElvaney and just going on through the night and then it'll be it'll feel like an after drinks screening if you go in at 10 a.m you've described timothy chalamet and i am going to nick this but attribute it to you brian viner as the james dean of gen z uh you've got a daughter about chalamet's age is she a fan of the chalamet She's a bit older, actually. She's 28. Is she a fan? I, I, I don't know, actually. Yeah, I'm not sure we've discussed him. Um, but, um, yeah, I'm sure she likes him. I mean, you know, yeah, he's, he's a very good actor. I think he was miscast as Henry V, a bit too weedy to play a warrior king, personally. But, uh, but, yeah, he's a very good actor. He'll grow into the role. I think he was great in Little Woman, as I think you did, because he was playing well, a version of himself, whereas yeah, was, with acting yeah. you need to... You need to reach a bit more to that. Um, there is a piece that you wrote uh, all about sports documentaries uh, or sports films, and I wanted to pick you up on two of those before we return to Everton. What were you doing uh, as a desperately homesick teenager in Paris watching Chariots of Fire? Well, I 
left school at 18 and took a year out before I went off to university uh, and decided that um, I needed to do something that was kind of formative. So I went to Paris, having done French A-level, and actually at the time was planning to read French at university, although I didn't, as it turned out. But went to Paris um, and had to, you know, stand on my own two feet for the first time in my life, find a, find a flat to live in, find a job, try and make friends, do all those things, you know, without the benefit of no mobile phones in those days, no social media. So it wasn't always a very um, easy experience, but it was a very formative one. And during that time, Chariots of Fire came out at a time when I was feeling particularly homesick. I know England wasn't very far away, but it might as well have been. And I remember, funnily enough, a guy who I ended up sharing a flat with and became, was became my best man and I was his best man. We became huge friends. Uh, he was also in Paris at that time and he also went to see Charles Fire in the same cinema, uh, possibly even the same performance. And we both had the same profound effect on both of us. It made us feel very, very homesick, but also kind of proud to be English. And it's a, it a great sort of patriotic, stirring film. Yeah, I saw, the, I saw the theatre production in Hampstead, which is the most North London thing one can say. It was... Um... Uh, Rebecca Hall's brother, uh, who directed it, who was the theater, the director of the space. And it was very good. And when I saw it, it was a preview and the stage broke halfway through. So we had to wait 20 minutes for it. But the film I saw as well, because they brought it back, I think just before the Olympics for the 20th and 30th anniversary screening. And it's wonderful. Right. I think it was it Duncan Hamilton who wrote the Eric Little book? It may have been. Oh, I yeah, can't I'm remember. Not sure. But yeah, yeah I'd practicing Christian, Eric Little. It was a superb evocation. And then Harold Abrams. Uh, yeah. the flying uh, opponent and it's a terrific story I hope they remake it obviously well, it will lose they something but they're remaking everything or putting a prequel in it when was the last time yeah. you saw an original story with original intellectual property Pixar yes, probably I may well have been yeah no I really hope they don't make remake Chariots of Fire I'm sure they won't mm. but anyway, well yeah. one film that um, one film director whom I think is Streets Ahead in documentary, at least, is Asif Kapadia, Liverpool fan, don't hold it against yeah. him, uh, who, along with James yeah. Gay Reese, has done the Senna documentary, the Amy documentary, and the Maradona documentary, which uh, you call the man practically the prototype of the flawed genius. Where were you for England Argentina when Maradona did his flicker over Peter Reed? Uh, I was um, I was in the flat, the South London flat of my girlfriend's sister, watching on a small black and white TV, and I can't quite remember why I was there, um, but um, that's where I was, yeah, so, mm -hmm. hand of God. Yes, it, it is, it is one of those where I was when moments. Um, I can equally remember, you know, in 1994 years later, where I was when, uh, for that semi-final, and then again in 1996 for that semi-final, so um, what I can't really remember is where I was for the 1966 World Cup final because I was only four years old but uh, I, I'm sure I would have been plonked in front of it somewhere and that's interesting because further plonkage would occur I haven't read it but I this is a kind of book I should um, it's Ali, Pele, Lily and me uh, which seems to be um, very similar to what Nigel Tassel did with his book Butch Wilkins which is I think a slightly later I think 80s and 90s but football on telly in the 70s, of a Sunday afternoon, 
There wasn't much else to do. So I guess you would have got hooked to the act of drama, intrigue, tragedy, farce, comedy through watching these great figures on telly in the 70s. Well, telly, football in the 70s on television was a very different beast to what it is now. Uh, match of the day had highlights of only two games. And then if you turned up at a game in the South, turned up at Goodison Park in the 70s and the BBC cameras were there and you knew it was going to be on match of the day, it was a, it was a reason to be incredibly excited. Um, but also there was something called the Big Match, which was the ITV um, version, but that was on a Sunday afternoon and that was extended highlights of one game from the day before. Um, you can't believe it now. There was no live league football in those days at all, none. You know, if you if the big match was covering Everton versus Watford, say, well, it wouldn't have been Watford then, but let's say, you know, Everton v Man United. Forest. Yeah, yeah. Everton. Uh, Man. Uh, then you know you could you could uh, you, know, you had to wait twenty four hours to watch the extended highlights on a Sunday, and it was just about possible if you really tried hard to not know the result from the Saturday afternoon uh, and to watch it as live on the Sunday afternoon. But that involves an awful lot of kind of ululating madly when anybody was about to tell you the score. So <laughs> Rodney Buse. Yeah, completely yeah. different times. Um, also different times because Everton have done quite well against United recently. There was in this 78-73 uh, season, the team finished third, by the way, that season, but you know that because you wrote the book, Looking for the Toffees. United beat Everton 6-2. Did you know any United fans at the time? Yeah, lots. Yeah, yeah. And actually, that game was on Boxing Day, and Everton. It, it, we we were on a really great run. We hadn't. We were unbeaten since the start of the season. And I remember very, very vividly going to that game at Goodison. Uh, so it was six-two to United at Goodison. Yeah, we walked. We kind of stumbled away, shell shocked. Dave Prentice, I'm sure, remember it as well. You know, we we felt certain United were nothing special in those days. And I don't know what happened, what went wrong, but. Uh, but it was the end of our something like a 23-match unbeaten run. That was a bit of a shock. So, yeah, I remember the, the big defeats, just like I remember the great victories. I think we all do. But at no point that day did anyone say, he's taken the club, Gordon Lee's taken the club as far as he can go. It's none of that. The discourse back then is not the discourse that it is now. And I am losing faith in the discourse around the top tier. And I figured out why the money. There is so much parasitical football coverage Um, and you saw that in lockdown suddenly when there's no football to cover the world seems less noisy and quieter but I just wanted to ask you since next year Fever Pitch turns 30 you being in Crouch End so you would have known a lot of literary folk was there really an overnight change in football consumption before and after Nick published the book? (laughs) No I don't think I mean I, I I think it maybe brought it to a. It was probably partly instrumental in bringing it to a, a sort of new audience, I suppose. Um, but um, it didn't. It had no impact on me. I have to say, um, it wasn't my club. You know, it wasn't my team. I, I, I didn't want it. I wasn't interested in reading a book about about Arsenal, even if it, even if a lot of his experiences chimed with mine. You know, um, so. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, people talk about fever. Maybe people give it a bit more, you know, a bit more um, significance than it truly deserves. But it was part. It was part of a, a general, you know. And I think all kinds of things. You know, Tony Blair, um, the kind of the Blairite revolution. You know, it, it brought and 
you know, cool Britannia and all that football and it's new new appeal and it's new kind of middle class appeal and all that stuff happened in the 90s. Fever Pitch was part of that, but uh, didn't do it on its own. No, well, if you're in North London, there will there'll be loads of Arsenal fans anyway. But the, the world as it was then is not how it is now. But what I wanted to ask, what I'm fumbling towards, is you've now been in Lemster or Docklow for 20 years. Has the, yeah. the village fates, um, you say in Tales of the Country, up to 60 people appeared? Has it grown or got smaller in recent yeah, well, years? Well, it's, it's disappeared, actually. We don't have our oh. village fate anymore because a lot of those capable women uh, who used to run it have either moved away or died, so... So, yeah, we were talking about it the other day, actually. So we don't have a village fate, which is rather sad, but uh, maybe it'll get revived. Do you still sure, have veg auctions? The uh, the harvest auction in the local pub hasn't happened for a few years, largely because the pub has been closed, although it has just reopened. So uh, so we're all very happy about that. But this, and it's lovely reading about, especially the first few chapters, I did not know about Miss Whiplash because I'm very young. But what a, right. what a cause celebra. She's a born-again Christian. As you may know, yeah, yeah, I think she might have moved away as well. Actually, she has yeah, moved away. She was, yeah, 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 yes, absolutely. No, there are some was, great stories in in this book, which was your first one, and so you've had a, quite a few since then. I've also got your book with the alliterative chapter headings: uh, cream teas and sunshine, cream teas, traffic jams, and sunburn. Thank you. Good title, um, which is, About and I wanted to read that in lieu of going on a summer holiday uh, this year, Sorry. but. Uh, do you still go to Cornwall regularly? Uh, no, no, we did that when the children were younger, but we used to go every year. But no, we don't. We don't go anymore. No. Life moves on. But I suppose if you're, you're doing movies, watching movies is a busman's holiday. So, what is fun for you? Have you got passions that you didn't have twenty years ago that you do have now? Um, no, I wouldn't say so. I still. I mean, sport is is preeminent amongst my passions. Um, I probably don't play as well I don't play squash which I would have done 20 years ago uh, don't play as much tennis I still play golf still try and play cricket once a year or so but you know watch sports read about sports love sport and yeah watching films is a bit of a busman's holiday but you know love like everybody else completely hooked on certain series on Netflix or Sky Atlantic um, so do all that and uh it's different because my children are all grown up and they've left home, so so my wife and I have more time to ourselves. So um, food is very important. We eat well and drink well, you know. So uh, broadly yeah. speaking, the same interest now as we had twenty years ago. Yeah, jolly good. But um, we so, so you're writing film reviews on one desk. Uh, Jane, your wife is writing a novel. Is she working on a novel? Is she has she drafted one she yet? Is. She is. She's writing on. A, she's always got a novel Good. that she's writing. Yeah, yeah. We Are you the first copies. pair of eyes that she shows? I prefer to read her books when they, when they, yeah, when she's finished. Uh, am I the first pair of eyes? Um, probably not quite, but um, but I do always help to proofread her books. Yeah, yeah. and um, so um, yeah, she's great. She and she writes as Jane Sanderson. So. Um, your listeners should look out for her books. Do you get your football library membership card, by the way, I haven't said? Uh, Bob Latchford, Gordon Lee, who do you want on it? Right. Well, that's very difficult. Um, well, I would say because he's become a mate and because he's such a wonderful player, he didn't play nearly enough for England, uh, I would say Dave Thomas. 
Well, thank you so much. Dave Thomas it is. Um, yes, Jane Sanderson Mixtape is the latest book. I'm, I, inadvertently, I've, I seem to be writing a novel. It's about a guy who watches his team lose, let's call it 6-2 on Boxing Day, and uploads a video online and says, Mr Chairman, I'm ready if you want me. Chairman rings him up and says, all right then, come to the office tomorrow. It's because I'm looking at the relationship between the fan and the footballer. And I guess one of the things in looking for the toffees is the strength between the footballer and the fan. Do you think that can ever come back? Not, no, not in the way that it was, no, um, because it was based on... There's a story in my book about George Wood driving to the game on a Saturday and giving a lift to, you know, half a dozen lads that he saw thumbing a lift to, and uh, get them in the back of his car and hide them to try and get them through past the doorman and into the ground. Uh, well, that's never going to happen again, is it? So, uh, no, there were certain, you know, certain things that were very much off their time that will never happen again. But the, the connection between a, a player and the fans, that, that, that goes on. It just it just changes, doesn't it? And it's, you know, and however it, uh, it just evolves. And um, so there will always be a strong connection between players who put something into the community and and the fans but it will never be quite the same as it was no and johnny nick john nicholson of football 365 who is the library's hermit because he's always writing books he has just written a book called was football better in the old days and we're short on time but (laughs) a quick yes or no quickly kevin will he score in some ways it was in some ways it wasn't and i think looking for the toffees does well to explain how it was, yeah, it can't, you can't you can't have a yes or no really because it was better in some ways and not. Of course, you know there was rampant hooliganism in the seventies, uh, and also England didn't qualify for successive World Cups in the seventies. So I went from the age of eight to the age of twenty-two without ever seeing England in a World Cup, uh, something we t- totally take for granted now. So, you know, it was different back then, and it was much less comfortable and. You know, the terraces could be a dangerous place and an uncomfortable place. But like all these things, you look back on it with just total, you know, love and affection. Um, So, but, you know, times change. So was it better? Not necessarily, but it was great at the time. We loved it and still love football today for all its flaws. Can't be starry eyed about it in the old days, but um, it was a different game for sure. Quite right. And uh, looking for the toffees, Brian Viner's book does well to paint that as the case. Uh, This weekend, well, you're celebrating 60 years on the planet, and let us hope that Watford can spoil your birthday um, Uh, by uh, going ahead and then losing 6 1. That'll probably be. Yeah. Yeah, that's fine. That'll do it. Just like the library! Just like the library! Just like the library!